foul-mouthed, arrogant, girl-chasing, party-hopping, money-grubbing, and yet still empty, despite chasing those experiences and those things and those people. That was me when Jesus found me. And I stand here before you now, Bible preaching, humbled beyond what I care to think about, chasing only one girl for the last 25 years. That's for you, baby. And try to be as generous as, as I possibly can. That's what Jesus does. Jesus changes people. He asks us in. He invites us in. We reciprocate, invite him in. And from that moment, we're changed, and he keeps changing us. And it started with the people who he walked the earth with. They were the ones who came to him, and he changed them. And thank goodness they did. I look at those guys, and I am so thankful because I see myself in those knuckleheads, and I see what can happen. And as we, as we think about this morning, I want you to think about this phrase. The change in the life of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus is both evidence of the resurrection and encouragement that change is possible for us. That's what Jesus is about. He's about change. We have lots of information about the man Jesus, we have some of the most reliable sources from that time period in history in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we also have ancient historians who have done a lot of the work, references from outside the Bible. So if you're not sure that the Bible is reliable or you can trust it, there's a set of sources outside the Bible, Pliny, Tacitus, Josephus. Those guys were not followers of Jesus. They weren't even fans of Jesus, nothing like that. But they were historians. And Today's scholars and historians have come up with this thing called minimal facts. I introduced this concept to you guys last week. Minimal facts, this method considers only those data that are so strongly attested historically that they are granted by nearly every scholar who studies the subject, even the rather skeptical ones. Followers of Jesus, people ambivalent to Jesus, people hostile to Jesus, they all agree on this set of facts. Jesus was an actual person. He was historically lived. Jesus was revered as a wise teacher. Jesus was involved in unexplained phenomenon. Skeptical scholars refused to call them miracles, so Jesus was just involved in some stuff that happened on more than one occasion. Jesus was um, executed by Roman crucifixion. Jesus' tomb is empty, and the disciples were convinced that they physically saw Jesus rise from the dead. So we take those facts and we can, we can be confident in the, in the historical person of Jesus. And when we, when we look at that, Scripture tells us the rest, the rest of the story. Right? It fills us, fills us in on the person of who Jesus was and the things that he did and, and why he had to come and, and walk this earth. Scripture tells us that way, way back in the beginning, Adam and Eve, the very first people, God gave them one don't, one, one don't, and they couldn't do it. They picked that fruit off the tree, and they ate it. And when they did that, this thing called sin came crashing in on the world. And from that point in time forward, everything is skewed, everything is off, everything is broken. 
That's why we struggle with things like feeling like we know better than God. That's why we do things like try to be God and push him out of that place that, that he deserves and is, and is rightfully his. But God in his mercy and grace and infinite wisdom had a plan to fix that because we were so important to him. He wanted to be in relationship with us. You see, that sin separated us from God. God is perfect, and with that sin in our lives, we are far from perfect. It's as if we were separated from him by a wall that's infinitely high, infinitely wide, and infinitely deep. God came up with a plan to take care of that, and he sent Jesus Christ to earth as a man, and he walked this earth in the frailty of the human condition, and he lived a perfect life without sin. Not a single one. Not as a toddler, not as a teenager, not as a man. He did not sin. He also kind of earned a name as a troublemaker amidst the religious elite and the Roman, uh, the Roman ruling authorities. And it became politically expedient to do away with Jesus. So they trumped up some charges against him. They brought in a trial. They brought a trial together with some false witnesses. And they found him guilty of crimes against the state. And he was tortured and he was executed. God used the authorities of the day to implement his plan. Because you see, that sin required a punishment. There was wrongdoing involved and there was a punishment that needed to be inflicted. We could never endure that punishment. The, the sin was so great, we could never handle it. Because Jesus was perfect, not only did he, was he executed, he took that punishment on the cross, but scripture tells us that three days later, he rose from the dead. And that, that is the peace that nobody counted on. They planned his execution said, all right, we're done. This Jesus thing is over. We're good. And there are those people today who would still like to think, like to prove that that didn't happen. And there's a number of different theories, and I'm just going to run through them real quick, of the, the possible alternatives. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. That's impossible. It doesn't happen. First one is called the swoon theory. People who are proponents of this theory suggest that Jesus just passed out on the cross after the, the torture that he went through, the nails through the hands and his feet, the spear in his side. He just, people lose consciousness from extreme pain. He lost consciousness. They thought he was dead. They put him, they put him in the tomb, and he woke up and he walked away. Problem with that is that, as we discussed last week, Jesus was brutally, brutally beaten. Flesh ripped off of him, holes in him, a spear in his side, into his heart. Even if he did swoon, he was placed in a tomb with a very large boulder in front of it. A healthy man by himself could not have moved the boulder. Never mind somebody who had been beaten within inches of their life. Practicality, right? How about the disciples' reaction? When Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection... You would think if he just fainted, and he would be like bloody. He would be a mess. There'd be screaming. Be like, Somebody get a doctor. Where's Luke? Come, come here. No. That's not how they reacted. That's not what's captured in the scripture. 
The swoon theory is no longer a thing, but every once in a while, there's somebody will try to, pardon the pun, resurrect it. The group hallucination. Somebody suggested this, so it got some attention. But group hallucinations don't happen. There's never been one recorded. It's just not possible. When people do experience hallucinations as individuals, there's a certain mindset that um, as scientists study them, their mindset is all very similar. The mindset of the, um, of the disciples and the people who saw Jesus in his resurrected form was not, it did not match that pliable, they were in mourning, they were in grief, they were in shock. They were not susceptible to hallucination. The body was stolen. So the problem with that is there's no body, right? If there is opposition to Jesus, they, all they had to do is say, hey, here he is, dead guy. Nobody ever stepped forward and argued with the fact we don't, it's not recorded anywhere in history that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Nobody said, here's the body. There are no, no witnesses to that effect. The other thing that's interesting along this line is the very first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. And that fact is included in the scriptures, which makes no sense at the time they were written because women were considered horrible witnesses. They couldn't be trusted in a court of law. Why would they put that in there? Right, if there was a body, and all they had to say was, see, the women are wrong. There's the body. Last one. It's simply a legend. There are other um, cultures that have resurrection stories, right? But those tend to be like around fertility gods. They come back year after year around the spring, the time that um, things start growing again. The other, the other piece of that is that we we have this gift, we've been given this gift of this ancient piece of written testimony that cites eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we're going to spend a good chunk of our time on. Um, this is from the book of 1 Corinthians. It's in chapter 15. Hey, if you want to follow along, we have Bibles. If you don't have one, um, it's yours to take with you. You can put your hand up and the ushers will bring one to you. The verses will be up on the screen. But this is from the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 8. For what I This is a man named Paul who's writing this. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kepha and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I want to make a couple of, of kind of general comments about the verses. Paul starts this by saying, for what I received, I passed on. Apparently, this phrase was a common oratorical device, right? There wasn't we, don't, we didn't have books. They didn't pass information around through literature. It was all transmitted orally. So when somebody started with this, they were saying, I didn't make this stuff up. Somebody else gave this to me. There were eyewitnesses. There were people who were there that entrusted this to me to pass on to you. Second thing, Paul cites two different kinds of witnesses. He says, according to the scriptures. And this would be a fantastic, another way to look 
at the Easter story. And that's through the fulfillment of the prophecies from the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, that talk about Jesus and the things that he would do and how he would die and how he would rise again. Hundreds of years prior, and they were, they were all fulfilled. But for the sake of focus, we're going to concentrate this morning on the fact that he appeared to people. There were eyewitnesses that are, for us, reliable. Most of whom are still living. Paul's saying, look, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. They saw them. They were there. Go talk to them. Go check it out. All right. So now we're going to dive in a little bit to the specific people. Then he appeared, this, that name, Kepha, is also, it's Peter. That's his name in the original, the original language. And to the 12. These were the 12 men who Jesus spent pretty much 24-7 throughout the three years of his, of his active ministry. It's really critical that we understand who these guys were. So they were average Joe kind of guys. Some of them were professionals. Some of them were tradesmen. They were nationalists and traders. Um, they were impetuous. They were hot-headed. Just a hodgepodge of, like I referred to them earlier, as knuckleheads. They did things like, so Peter, Peter once tried to correct Jesus in such a way that offended Jesus so much that he said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. He called him Satan. Like, Jesus calling you Satan has got to be like up there in the worst things that you can hear from anybody. Um, James and John, two more of these guys, once got in an argument about which one of them should have the seats of power when Jesus' kingdom came into effect. And the rest of the 12 got upset that they were having this argument because they thought they should, and they all, there was like this big brouhaha over the, like being power hungry. Judas famously betrayed him. Peter denied him. They all abandoned him while he was being tried and tortured. And then after he rose and appeared to most of the disciples, Thomas still didn't believe in him because he didn't see him himself. So, fast forward 40 days. These guys go from what I just described to healing people, performing miracles. I just read this morning as I was reading my Bible that they started healing people and people found out, the surrounding area found out, and they brought crowds to them. And it says they healed everyone. Everyone. Jesus' disciples, the guys who were screwing up, who couldn't really seem to get much right. These guys wrote the New Testament. They literally turned the world upside down and changed the course of history. It's a big, big change. All right, so it wasn't... It wasn't just Jesus' followers. Then he appeared to James. There's a couple of James listed in the New Testament. This James is Jesus' little brother. This James thought Jesus was wackadoo when he walked the earth. He and his other brothers tried to, the Bible says, take charge of him because he was creating a ruckus. Again, fast forward. James becomes a leader, if not the leader, of the first church. He writes one of the books in the New Testament. 
And then the Bible tells us that he was martyred because he refused to deny Jesus. Used to think he was nuts. He ended up being murdered because he refused to deny Jesus. Last one. This person was flat out hostile, hostile towards Jesus and his message. The guy who wrote that, the creed, right, his name was Saul, changed to Paul. Whenever somebody undergoes a big change in the Bible, God changes their name. So this, this is a description of Paul at the beginning. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was trying to tear Christianity apart. The language that was used was similar to what they would use to uh, forces attacking a city, trying to bring down the, the walls of a city, the siege works that they would put up. And in modern day, it kind of made me think of like the footage that we see from the battles in the Middle East and the battles for towns. Like Paul was trying to tear Christianity apart. Men were killed and tortured and women were thrown in jail, all at Paul's direction. Ready? Fast forward. This one's a little bit longer. I have worked much harder. This is, this is Paul saying how he's, that lengths that he went to for Jesus and to promote the news, the message of Jesus. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food, and I have been cold and naked. That is an amazing transformation. Put himself in every kind of physical jeopardy that we could probably come up with. So what happened? What was it that turned the, the, the people who were following Jesus, but they didn't quite get it, right, when they walked with him? They weren't quite with him. And then Jesus' very own brother. And then a man who was convinced that Christianity was the worst thing that had ever happened and was trying to destroy it. The disciples, along with James and Paul, were absolutely convinced that they had seen the risen Christ. The risen Christ in bodily form. It's very important. Belief in spirits and in ghosts at this time was very common. And they did not claim to see a spirit. They did not claim to see a ghost. They said they saw Jesus in bodily form. It was a unique claim that no one, no one had made before. It was the fact that they were able to touch him and they shared meals with him and they hung out with him that they testified to his reality as a resurrected man. There stood before them was the promise of eternal life. Jesus had promised them eternal life when he walked with them. And there it was, standing right in front of them. One scholar says it was like heaven standing before them. 
They were so emboldened, so encouraged, so empowered by the fact that the things that Jesus said that he was going to do, he did. And they had zero doubt in it. And they went on to change the world because of it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes us forever. And then it keeps us forever changing. When we come to that point where we believe in Jesus' resurrection, when we look to him for the forgiveness of our sins as the only one who can do that, he changes us forever. We are taken and entered into eternity. We have that eternal life that starts here and now. And Jesus wants, to live, wants us to live like that here and now. And from that moment forward, he works in us to make that change a real thing. I say this to you guys often, and I especially mean it today because we have lots of visitors and family and friends. I don't think it's an accident that you're here this morning and these words are coming out of my mouth. There's a reason why you're here this morning. There's a reason why I'm standing up here telling you about a man who died 2,000 years ago. Because Jesus is about life change. He wants to take you from where you are and bring you to the place that he created for you. It's a lifelong process. And that could be a scary thing, a life of change. That, that sounds like it could be uncomfortable and scary and awkward. And I would be lying to you if I said that wasn't the case. But it is. It can be all of those things. But the fact that Jesus Christ, who was humble enough to take the form of a man and die as a servant, and yet powerful enough to beat death and rise from the grave, if that's what he's calling me to do, I'm in. Change me. Change me into the man that you created me to be. You see, God created each one of us with a spot in our hearts that was created exclusively for Jesus. And we go through our lives and we try and fill that spot in us with other things. Just like I described myself at the beginning, whether it's relationships or a relationship or our family, our kids, whatever it is, we try to jam stuff in there that doesn't belong in there. But when we allow Jesus into that space, when we ask Jesus into that space by saying, yeah, I believe that you rose from the dead and I believe that you forgive my sins, he enters us and that emptiness, that emptiness goes away. This idea of, of change, it can be really difficult, but I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to step into it. Maybe you're here and it's taking that initial step. Right, you're taking that initial step into eternal life with Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've been walking with Jesus for a while and you're in a rut. And things aren't going right and you're confused and you're like, what, this is not what I thought this was going to be. I want to encourage you with these two verses. We look to the Bible for two reasons. We look for the Bible that help us understand how we can relate to God. And we look to the Bible to help us understand how we can relate to each other. That's what we say all the time around here, right? We want to love God and we want to love others. So I wanted to share these two verses with you from the book of 2 Corinthians. Again, the same guy, Paul. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. So I'm talking about that point in time when you say yes to Jesus, 
You're changed forever. You are a new creation. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. And I'm so thankful. He meets us right where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus does not leave us alone. John used the example of somebody flipping dominoes for God. And he said that's a poor example, right? Because God doesn't just flip the dominoes and start things and create things and then leave us there. He walks with us day in and day out and wants to change us into the people that he created us to be. And I am so, so happy and so proud um, to get to introduce my friend Ian. He's going to come up and he's going to share a little bit of his story and talk about um, the changes that Jesus worked in him. Good morning. As Tom said, my name is Ian, uh, and I'm just a normal churchgoer like the rest of you. Uh, I've been coming to Crossroads for 22 years now, and I just turned 33 this past Friday, so that gives you a little bit of perspective of how much of my life I've spent here. And to give you perspective of how much of the church's life that's been, last year we celebrated our 25th uh, anniversary, or was that two years ago? Either way, uh, we just recently celebrated our 25th anniversary. So I've been coming to Crossroads for the majority of its existence and now the majority of my life. Uh, So when Tom approached me about sharing my story, I was hesitant um, because I know my life. And um, immediately I thought of uh, the Charles Barkley, uh, I am not a role model uh, campaign. And... That wasn't, that wasn't the truth. Um, the Apostle Paul uh, was not afraid to suggest that he be viewed as an example in 1 Corinthians 4. And uh, not only that, uh, false humility is a thief, and it desires to steal uh, the good news of uh, the work of Jesus and the honesty that we need to uh, approach it with. Um, so... I'm not going to boast in myself. I'm going to boast in Jesus and him crucified, just like Paul said in Galatians 6. That's why I'm here to tell my story, because I want to boast about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Um, So this is my journey um, of moving down uh, to move up. I'm going to start at the beginning, but this isn't my whole life story. Uh, That's really long, and if you want to talk to me about it, I'd be more than glad to share it with you. Um, This is actually my journey over the past year or so. So we're going to start at the beginning of last year. Uh, So around that time, Rich and Heidi had announced they would be moving on. Um, It's really good to see them here today. And um, they had challenged us as a community to uh, to ask God what our next steps, what our role would be in uh, being uh, a part of this new movement and transition in our community. Uh, So I took that challenge seriously, and I started praying. At the time, uh, I had been working a lot of overtime, and I was getting up early in the morning, and God immediately convicted me and said, hey, if you can do this for money, if you can do this for a company, uh, why can't you do it for me? And so after hearing that a couple of times, I was like, you know what, God, you're right. 
Um, there's nothing more important than you. So I dedicated myself to waking up at that same time that I was already waking up to get into work early to spend time with him. So that was my first step down. I gave up my time. Uh, second, a few months later, I had been doing this consistently, spending time with God, and I've been praying still, what's next, what's next? And then I hear this voice, this nudge saying, hey, uh, I think you need to step down from your position. At the time, I was the director of high school ministry. Some of you may know that. Um, and I loved what I did. And that was a really, really hard thing to hear because that's not something I felt like I needed to do. You know, I enjoyed what I was doing. I was still committed. Uh, but God said, no, I want you to step down. So I talked with Tom. And uh, he prayed about it, and he said, you know what, yes, do it. So I did it. That was my second step down. I surrendered my authority. So after that, now I'm really like, God, what's going on? Uh, I'm not sure where I fit in now. Uh, you know, youth ministry had been such a huge portion of my life, but now I started to just really start seeking what God wanted next, I continued my time in the morning with him, and uh, I had also been uh, started reading with, uh, with Tinica, my wife, in the evenings, and I started to hear this voice again, and this time, God was asking for our money. And just when you thought it couldn't get any crazier, you know, we're not people of means by any stretch. Uh, we were expecting another child and God says, no, I want you to give and be uncomfortable in your giving. So I talked with Tinica. She agreed it was the right thing to do. People need to stop agreeing with me. And, <laughs> and so we did it. And that was the third step down. And we surrendered our money, which is like surrendering your control. And as Jesus says, surrendering our hearts. So, you must be thinking, it's a lot of moving down in a year, Ian. You must be tired, feeling powerless, and pretty poor by now. Uh, but if I told you that I had a New Year's resolution where I was going to do all this stuff, and by the next year, I would actually be better off than I was the previous year, you'd look at me and be like, you're nuts. Um, but we serve an incredible God. And God has moved, and my life is better. We had our son. We moved into our new house. Um, I got a better job. And so you must say, okay, so you got, you got your place, uh, but whereas, uh, you must have no time, but part of my new job was actually, yes, I do have more time now. Um, and lastly, I don't have a ministry position, so you must think, well, you're still lacking in authority, but that's the beauty of the God we serve. Uh, if you have heard of the Bible Project, if not, I suggest you look them up. The Bible Project, in their videos about the gospel, loves to refer to the kingdom of heaven as God's upside-down kingdom. And that's because we, it doesn't function like the world. And here I am now talking to you. Uh, you would, I would say that's 
being put in some position of authority. Uh, but I gave up. And God has used that. So my last words of encouragement to you are um, don't shy away from being uncomfortable. Be willing to sacrifice. The, the Jesus model that we are talking about in this Easter season is exactly what we need. It works. I stand before you now as a testimony that it works. Just trust God. And if you're feeling that nudge like I felt, uh, odds are you'll find somebody that agrees with you. <laughs> um, because if it's what God wants, it's what's going to happen. Um, so once again, guys, this isn't a story about me. And I know a lot of you know me. Uh, and I know a lot of you could hear this through the filter of things I've done or things my family has done. And I just want to say I'm sorry for those things. Uh, but don't let that taint the good news that I'm sharing with you today. Because that's the most beautiful thing. And that's the greatest thing that we could know. So thank you again for your time. And just glory to God. So Ian's, Ian's story is really, is really one of lifelong transformation. Um, he'll be hanging out afterwards, and please grab him and, and ask him about the years leading up until last year because the, the work that God has done in him and through him is really um, nothing short of, of miraculous. My hope and my prayer for each and every one of you as you leave here today is that you would have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus that you come to him and you look at the information and you talk to people and you figure out for yourself that Jesus really is who he said he is and he really does the things that he talked about. You invite him into your life and get ready because he won't leave you there. He will change you. He will take you from lonely to being part of a family. He will take you from being far away and change you to being near. He will take you from being an alien and a foreigner and make you a citizen of his kingdom. He will take you from sick and change you to healthy. He will bring you from broken to whole. The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings us from death to life.